Amen. Second Kings this evening, chapter 18. The title is The Voice of Satan. <clears throat> this is um, a section that's covered in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah. Uh, there's never an end to preparation, to reading. When you finish reading all three of those and every commentary you can find on all three of those, there's still something more. And uh, you, because the goal... I think of all Christians is to squeeze as much out of everything for the kingdom that we can when we're giving a chance. For a pastor, of course, the big chance is, for, uh, is in the pulpit to try to squeeze out something that will uh, edify the people in some way. Convict, rebuke, exhort. Again, the story shifts back in time, and that is important. It's important to understand that when you come to the Old Testament books, strict chronology is usually not there. And it's up to the reader to research and put the puzzle together. And it's doable most of the time. Uh, it's not that critical because the truths are, are there. They can be out of chronological order. The truths remain. The truths. So... Uh, and this, this evening, we've got some other ones floating around like little satellites of poor chronology. But that, that's how it is. It's not a criticism. It's just a fact. Um, the unbeliever may come to that and say, think that those are grounds for rejection, and, and they are wrong. Well, Judah is the remainder of the focus throughout the rest of kings because the northern kingdom is gone. It will be touched on again. But they're, they're taken captive and, and dispersed throughout the pagan world. And the pagans have been put into their territory. In verse 1 of chapter 18, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. In verse 2, he was 25 years old when he became king and reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Well, he becomes king of Judah about three years before Assyria takes the northern kingdom, conquers it, and takes it away. So he's about 25 years old. When he sees this, he knows, he can recognize that that was a judgment on them, and he takes steps to avoid it happening to Judah. He, he becomes a very faithful king. In fact, you know, you can say he was um, the most faithful of, of all of the Judean kings, not counting David, starting with the, the fall of the split of the nation, of the kingdom. Uh, Josiah, of course, is right there with him, but Hezekiah is, is exceptional. And it is a delight to study uh, this man's life. He has one stumble, and we'll come to that in a little bit. Verse 3, And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father David had done. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, this was said of Asa, Jehoshaphat, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Just those kings of the south, none of the north, uh, received that uh, commentary. And it is remarkable that such a man as Hezekiah is the son of such a rotten man as Ahaz. And his life 
is different largely because he willfully comes under the, the influence of Isaiah. Uh, Micah the prophet is ministering in Israel at this time, in Judea at this time also. But, but uh, Hezekiah and Isaiah seem to have been close as, as just friends, as well as Isaiah, of course, being the great prophet that he was and uh, the, the king. And it, it shows up. He personally did right in the sight of the Lord. He personally loved the Lord. And when he comes to power or comes to the throne, uh, he immediately institutes drastic reforms against the devil's work that his own father had uh, pushed upon the people. And many of the people, you didn't have to push them much. Uh, this is... Um, his, his reforms are more wise, widespread than any of the kings before him. It says, according to all his father, David had done. And, of course, David is the standard into the New Testament. David is honored as such a righteous righteous man. And this Hezekiah, he, um, you know, sang the songs of David. We read about him in the Psalms. Uh, even in the days of trouble, David sang songs to the Lord. Hezekiah is this kind of a king. Hezekiah restores temple worship, reestablishes the sacrificial system, even reaches out to others throughout the land, if there were any uh, from the northern kingdom still in the territory, inviting them to come celebrate the Passover. He reorganized the priests, meticulously outlined their responsibilities, tore down the high places of false worship and those pagan altars all over the land, he published 137 Proverbs of Solomon that were otherwise not published. He gets, you know, he has the rights to them and he makes sure that they uh, go public. He destroys even the bronze serpent that Moses had uh, erected there in the wilderness. And he's just, he knew, he understood like Paul. Paul could see things that was wrong with his people's practices and he'd go against them. Uh, the, the, the Sabbath and, and the, the circumcision for the Gentiles. And Paul, just he could see it, and he stood firm. Well, Hezekiah was a similar in, in that regard. When the Assyrian conquered the north, the northern kingdom, um, he, he has to face the Assyrians, and he becomes a vassal king to them, to them or the king of Judah. He puts under their, uh, he pays tribute. To the Assyrians. Uh, he's going to stop doing that. Oh, I don't know, 17 years or so later, he's going to just stop. Uh, maybe not that long, but he, he does stop. The Assyrians were going, are, are going to come against him for that, and that's when he's going to stumble and cave into them, and then they're going to go away, and then they're going to come back again, and that's when he really shines. Verse 4. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Well, the Nehushtan means the bronze thing. It's got the idea of the bronze serpent in, in the Hebrew language. And uh, again, Hezekiah and Josiah... Um, Iconoclastic, just break down icons wherever they, they could. Chuck Smith says, when I need 
an idol to remind me of God, that's a sign of spiritual dullness. And, and that is accurate. If you have to have, uh, you know, the Jews would boast the invisible God because everyone else had their some representation. It's an interesting thing. You don't find the Jews bowing down before a theophany, an appearance or, or a manifestation of God in the, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud in the daytime to the Jews, for example, was one theophany. It's a manifestation of God's presence. The bush that burned but was not consumed, that's a theophany. A Christophany is when God does it in human form. In the Old Testament, before the birth of, of, of Christ, before the virgin birth, when Christ shows up in the Old Testament uh, as the angel of the Lord, uh, as the one that came and, and dined with Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah was, was burned to the ground, he would receive worship. Um, you know, if they bowed down before him, he would receive it. But not, not a, not a, you, you wouldn't find any of the Jews bowing down to a theophany, to a manifestation of God. That's an interesting thought, I think. Anyway, uh, the healing that came from this bronze serpent in the days of Moses, and if I'm speaking quickly, it's because there's so much information. I do want to cover it because I think it's very, very good, very rich with uh, lessons for us as Christians. When uh, the Jews became unbelieving in the wilderness, God sent serpents to bite them, vipers. And he told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent that whoever would look at the serpent would be healed if they, were, if they suffered a bite from the serpent. And if you were obstinate and said, I'm not going to look at it, then you died in, in the judgment. And of course, this is an image, a type, a type of the cross of Christ. Well, the Jews kept this bronze serpent, and they're burning incense to it. Now, some might say, well, you know, Ahaz took away the altar, took away the temple worship, so this is the closest thing we've got. Well, that would have been wrong still. That would not have been an acceptable reason. God had forbade such things. And so Hezekiah comes to the throne, and he gets rid of it. And he destroys it and says, this is no hushtan. It's just a bronze thing. It's nothing. It is nothing. It is not God. And um, though it had been used in the wilderness, as I mentioned, to heal, to save lives uh, as a type of Christ, it is no power at this point. And uh, the lesson is, of course, that men in rebellion, the lesson from that serpent in the wilderness, men in rebellion have to be dealt with. And they have to be dealt with before the cross of Christ. So you're looking at it from the New Testament. Uh, our cross, of course, is uh, the most well-known emblem of God's judgment on sin. I, I don't know of a greater emblem. Even the Ten Commandments does not go as far. There's not blood on the Ten Commandments. There's blood on the cross, and it's the blood of the Son of God. And that blood is a testimony to his love and his invitation to come and, and, and believe. And, and we, of course, know the story. On a, Wednesday, on a Sunday morning, might have to go into a little bit more detail. That's a note to myself. Anyway, the Jews preserved the, uh, preserved the serpent, made an idol out of it, and, you know, fallen nature looks to material things and will ignore God who deserves the trust and adoration. So, uh, anyway, uh, moving on to verse 5. 
he trusted in Yahweh, God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Again, that's beginning at the split of the kingdom after Solomon. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which Yahweh had commanded Moses. So he's a man of the law, a great heart for God. We read this in Second Chronicles, and there are about four chapters devoted to Hezekiah there. In chapter 31, it says, in, in every work that he began in service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, so he prospered. So this is the kind of man we have before us, this King Hezekiah, who's going to be put under severe pressure by, by the Assyrians, as we often are by Satan. Satan puts us under severe pressure at times in our life. Uh, so his first order of business was to restore the place of worship. We get that in Second Chronicles 29. Second Chronicles 29 gives us a lot more details, but it does leave out some of the other parts. And so, you know, and then Isaiah gives us even more, and it's a lot of reading. Second Chronicles 29.10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with Yahweh God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. And so he knew he had to clean up what his father left behind. He had a kingdom of people who were very comfortable with idolatry, if not totally engaged with it. Of course, we, you may have neighbors and friends, associates, that are very comfortable with rejecting Jesus Christ. And it is our responsibility to recognize that, not to vilify them and become their enemies, but to understand what we're working with. It says here in verse 6, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Now, Hezekiah and Josiah, both are described in this way. And I, it, it's a remark about the life of Hezekiah that I think the historian said, just let it stay like that. We don't need to add to that. Oh, and Josiah too. Now, Josiah comes along. Uh, by the time Josiah dies, it's 92 years after thereabout. Hezekiah. And the historians make the comment, Josiah was this great king also. But they don't say, let's go back and let's amend what we said about, what, what, what was said about Hezekiah to include Josiah. They just let it stand. That's my take on it. And I think uh, that makes perfect sense. Um, they, they had other problems, like the chronology, evidently. <laughs> anyway, verse 7. Uh, Yahweh was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So he, he gets, he, God is with him, he understands this, and he finds, you know, why are we giving God's money to these pagans, this pagan kingdom? Uh, we, we're, we're setting our faith right with God. And so uh, his father tried to rebel, but his father had different motives. His father just wanted the money, whereas Hezekiah... He wants to keep the money too, but it is God's people and he's the king over the people of God as a man of God. And so he's going to stand up against the ungodly and, and this 
this tribute he has to pay. It took courage to do this, but it backfires. And we can surmise why it backfires the first time. The second time, it does not. Verse 8, he subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Well, we'll come back to his rebellion, but in the midst of it, uh, he's taking territory back from the Philistines. There's that phrase from watchtower to fortified city. You know, it's a thorough um, campaign that he launched. He attacks the Philistines. And this is in fulfillment to Isaiah 14. Yeah, you get to Isaiah, you read chapter 14, and some of the other chapters through 28 and all this, you're like, boy, this is tough reading. Well, but there's prophecy in there. And it's a fulfilled prophecy. And this is, this is one of them. Uh, Hezekiah, he finishes the work that his grandfather, his great-grandfather, Uzziah, began. There's Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. And uh, his great-grandfather started a work against the Philistines, and now he finishes it. Uh, and the Philistines don't become a great threat after this. Uh, verse 9, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. So the chronicle goes back again to before the kingdom was the northern kingdom was uh, completely overrun, and he's now talking about the siege. Just a brief rundown of the Assyrian kings. Tiglath-Pileser, he comes against Ahaz, makes him a vassal king of Assyria. Shalmaneser comes against Samaria, the northern tribes, and besieges them. His son, evidently, Shalmaneser dies before the, the siege is complete, three-year siege. Sargon, his son, conquers Samaria, takes them into captivity. Then Sennacherib comes into power, and he attacks, uh, he subdues Hezekiah. Now he's going to attack him for not paying tribute. Uh, Hezekiah will then pay tribute, but then later he comes back again. And it's going to be kind of interesting to try to get through why, why does he come back again? Because it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make it that clear, but there are, there are very strong clues. Anyway, when he comes back that second time, he's defeated by the Lord and 185,000. Overnight, of his troops are slain, forcing him to retreat. Verse 10, And at the end of three years, they took it. That's Samaria. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria, was taken. Now, I purposely leave out the overlapping of the kings. Sometimes, you know, uh, Ahaz is, you know, king, but he's really not ruling. His son is also king, and they're, they're sharing the throne. Uh, and, and this is quite common. But it's confusing enough <laughs> without throwing that in. So I, I'll just leave it out, because it really doesn't change much. Every now and then it might might be an element to, to pause over. But overall, it's just more confusion uh, from the way I see it. Verse 11, although I, I think the commentators in written form, they should go into these things. Uh, very helpful. But as far as from uh, speaking about it, it, it could be heavy duty. Verse 11, then the king of Assyria cried, uh, carried, sorry, Israel away captive to Assyria. And put them in Hala and by the Habar, the river Gozan, 
and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. So again, the historians not letting any of their uh, the future generations lose sight of what happened. We see this today. I mean, we even have a, you know, remember the Alamo. Uh, I think this is about rental car prices. But no, of course not. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, uh, the fall of the northern kingdom uh, is restated here. Now we switch back at verse 13 to Assyria coming against Hezekiah with, with force. For the first time, in verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Well, it's about 715 years before the coming of Christ. Um, the, the second one will be at, in about 701 years, so about a 14-year gap. This is about eight years after Samaria fell. That's where we are. So there's a lot of time in between these events. If you read them, they seem like they just happen dovetailing one into the other, and that's not the case here. Between the invasions, we'll get to a little bit more about this first one in a moment, but Hezekiah, after this first invasion, he's going to get very sick, and God is going to heal him miraculously. But the, both uh, Chronicles and Kings puts this at the end of his life. And so the chronology is out of order again. Because when he gets healed, the Babylonians come to say, hey, we just want to bring you some flowers and chocolate and say we're glad you're well. And Isaiah's like, what did you show them? He said, well, I showed them everything. He said, you nitwit. You weren't supposed to do that. And now, they're, now it's going to be a problem. Now Babylon's going to get strong and they're going to come take it all. And the guy's going to say, we're going to do it in my lifetime? No. Whew. Well, okay. Let him have it. Uh, so not quite like that, but yeah, that's how it was. So, um, so we, again, we're kind of all over, but it's part of, a big part of the story. Because Assyria, they know what's happening in Israel. They've got their spies. And they find out these Babylonians are coming down. They're saying, hey, you, you know, Judah is at it again. And, you know, going to Egypt, now they're making deals with Babylon. Babylon's not strong yet. Babylon's way from being strong, but, but she's building up, and Assyria knows this. Eventually, um, almost 200 years from, from here, Babylon will be the world force and will take out Assyria. Anyhow, um, this, um, it, it's interesting, in the annals of Sennacherib, he has this stone carved with details about much of what tran transpired between these two kingdoms and others. And he says he took 46 cities and 200,000 captives from Judah. And it would be at this time, because again, the armies of the, the, the Lord wiped them out later, but it's at this first invasion when he's taking all these fortified cities. Uh, that's where you have to put that, I think. Um, some of it is debatable, uh, but not much. Much of it is you do the research, you, you have to come to, okay, this is, this is the puzzle that fits. Otherwise, you have bigger questions. So if you, if you put 
for example, um, this wipeout by the Lord of the 186,000 men at the first invasion, then he's not going to come again. <laughs> he's wiped out. So it has to be a second invasion. So let's, let's cover it. Verse 14. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So you see, uh, the king gives in. Hezekiah, the good king. He sees these cities being wiped out. And he said, man, he's going to come to Jerusalem and get us too. So this is not when uh, 185,000 Assyrian troops are wiped out overnight. This is years before that. So why, uh, why did God not come to Hezekiah's aid if he was such a good king at this time? Well, there were damage in the, in the land of idol- the idolatry that the people brought upon themselves. And even though the king is instituting reforms, doesn't mean the people are on board. Look, at when Josiah comes along, he does the same thing. But as soon as he dies, you get these four rotten kings and everybody cheering them on, making life miserable for Jeremiah and Baruch, his, his faithful uh, assistant. So uh, this is a judgment, and it it's, cannot be bypassed. God is, is filtering out. Uh, the idolaters in his land. There's still lessons for God's people to learn, and they're going to learn them like this because they are God's people. They are held to a higher standard. Men, you are held to a higher standard by God, and thus the, the, the temple tax placed upon the men, shekel, for the men to pay. Uh, interesting, I, and I want to get into it right now. I have a sermon ready for it, but I got a sermon ready for everything. It doesn't mean God says uh, I can do it. Anyway, you know, very few times do I know, really know, this is it. Uh, until it gets rolling. Anyway, coming back to this, uh, what if, what if Hezekiah decided to trust God right here and not give in? Well, I think we got would have got the same results we got last time. But what changed? What made him change so that when they come back a second time, he doesn't give in like he's giving in this time? Well, I think the sickness. When he gets sick and God says, I'll give you 15 more years, he's almost said to him, like like Peter, you know, you're going to be old when you die. Well, he comes back and him and Isaiah had to have said, look, God has given your life back to you. You've got 15 years. These Assyrians coming down, you're here to fight them. Don't give in. I think that's a big part of them looking at what God was doing with their lives and then doing something with what God had done with their lives, both he and Isaiah. I, and I think that's one of the great parts of the story is you, you, you have, we have monuments in our life where God did this for me and God did that for me. It's the whole story of the Jews in the wilderness when, when they were told God didn't lead you out of the promised land just to kill you in the wilderness because that's what they were complaining. Have you left us out of the, Egypt to kill us out here in the wilderness? What kind of thinking is that? So that's where we extract these lessons. And we connect these dots from the stories that we have preserved for us. So this uh, fact that Hezekiah uh, gives in, I don't fault him for it. What would you have done if you were the king and this juggernaut of an army is coming through? And by this time in history, the Assyrians are vicious people.
They are not just, okay, take the prisoners, sort them out, and sell them. They're skinning people alive. They're making an example about people. They're torturing them in the most horrific ways. Uh, the Jews know this. They are taking some captive, for sure. But they also are, are leaving examples all over the place. And there are other historical accounts outside of the Scripture that attest to this. Well, um, again, a severe trial. 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Some calculations come up with 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold. And it may have been just, just overwhelming to, to the kingdom, uh, which, well, let's continue. Verse 15. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house. So again, he gives in this time. Alan Redpath has an interesting quote about this kind of behavior. He says, You know nothing of the wiles of the devil until you are out and out for God and for souls. The measure of his concern about you is governed by the measure of your abandonment to the Lord. So Redpath says, When you start becoming devoted to the Lord and start serving him, the attacks are going to intensify. I can attest to that. Uh, I could sit down under a nice cherry tree and just sit back and say, I remember when I was just in the pew. Christianity was, you know, it's just a whole bunch of fun. Well, that's for amateurs. <laughs> you could say, you know, to yourself, you have to say something. Say, no, you're in the thick now. And so if you, you who serve, if you serve Christ, you are going to draw you're going to draw fire, more than the one who is not. Although the one that's not serving is also under pressure. Don't want to make it, no one, none of us get away unscathed. Uh, you have the pressure of feeling that you know you should be doing more. Anyway, just uh, ramblings from the life in Christ. We know it is worth it because if other Christians had not suffered before us, then what Christianity would have been around for us to enter into? Uh, what has kept Christianity moving forward through the centuries are faithful Christians who suffered and died for the faith. Even in the dark ages, there were believers, true believers. And uh, we just are very grateful for uh, the martyrs that have gone before us. All of this served to strengthen Hezekiah's faith in God, not men. And as I mentioned, he, he recovers as Peter recovered. Listen to, what, listen to what he will say at the next attack. When, when years later, when, when Assyria comes again, he says this to his commanders. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is Yahweh our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So you couldn't put those words at the first battle where he's sending the gold to him. This is the second time. I'm just reading it, getting ahead of it a little bit. Now, as a Christian, you come along and you face some monstrous challenge. Some awful thing. And you start using these words. Be strong and courageous. God says, Amen. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. That's right. Then you get to the part about the Lord fighting the battle for you, but things don't turn out the way you thought. 
Doesn't make God any less God. It goes back to God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love him. And we go by the promises of God, not the explanations. I mean, there are explanations in the promises sometimes. The bottom line is we believe. Though the vineyards, you know, fail, I will trust in the Lord. And when we get to heaven and look back, we say, wow, it's amazing how much God had this totally under his control when I thought he did not. Uh, I would have given up a long time ago were it not for the Holy Spirit to come upon the, the, the soul and say, you just keep swinging, you just keep trusting. That's what I want from you. You let the, the, the you know, the body count's going to be the body count. You just trust in me. And that has been a life saver. Uh, otherwise, ministry would be miserable. And I do talk about from time to time the, the hardships of public ministry. But I hope I, I back it up, uh, balance it with the blessings of the Lord that go with it. And uh, it just, you, you end up just, yeah, God is right. And it is, comes down to trust. I, if, if you had to go into battle with a Bible study or a trust of the Lord, only one you could take. Which one would you take? I would take the trust of the Lord. But I can't get that trust of the Lord without first the Bible study. So which would you rather go into battle with? A sword or iron ore? <laughs> you get the sword from the iron ore, but it's not the finished product. So, uh, yeah, courage uh, is part of... what. Here's another kind of courage. What happens when you fail? You're just not serving the Lord like you should, but you're still trying. Well, why are you still trying? Courage. I feel like if I were king of the forest. <laughs> it's courage. It's, it takes courage to serve God. It, it takes, okay, here comes the hit. Take it. Because it, he'll, he, he'll make good when he's good and ready. But that's the problem. Anyway, verse 16. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold. I read that part. Uh, well, I, well, let me reread it if I didn't. No, I did not. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of Yahweh and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave to the king of Syria. That had to break his heart. It had to break the heart of Isaiah, the prophet, both of them, looking out for, they wanted what God wanted. They wanted to look out for the people. They're at an end of themselves. This was the move they made. I think in hindsight, again, it was the right move. Hindsight for them, not me. Uh, The right move, because again, God is purging the land of, of the idolaters. Uh, through these hardships, forcing uh, um, to come back to Christ even, opportunities to come back. Um, But these two will prevail. Verse 17, Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh, he's a little music like that, uh, from Lachish, with a great army against Jerusalem, to King Hezekiah, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. Now is the second attack. This is, uh, and uh, I think most uh, serious commentators, they, 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 put, they come to the same conclusion. Uh, 
you know, you might, you know, as, as you study, you, you come to these things, you might kick back at them at first. Then you start investigating, and you've got to get to your own thinking. You have to get to where, okay, what do I think? I know what he said, I know what he said, but what do I think? And, you know, uh, I agree with many of them that uh, this is the separate attack here. And it is presented that way in Second Chronicles 32. In fact, I should just uh, read this. We, talk, we have this saying, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, listen to this in Hezekiah's day. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And so there it is. After these deeds of faithfulness, then comes the enemy. And this time the enemy gets to speak at the, at the walls of Jerusalem, and it will be the voice of Satan. And uh, this is where we are. The visit to the, uh, of the Babylonian uh, ambassadors, it looks suspicious to Assyria. Hezekiah has paid them off to appease them for now. But then they're raising their eyebrows over this. Uh, they're, they're actually knowing that there's some talking between Egypt and um, Judah because he's going to bring that up in his, in his uh, propaganda monologue. So the second visit, and that's how I'm going to approach it, you could say, if you didn't like that approach, you could say, no, the king paid off the king of Assyria and then uh, he didn't care for it and he came down anyway. But I, I don't think that fits much of the story. He mentions here in verse 18 the great army of Assyria. Well, he comes with enough troops just in case Egypt wants to uh, get involved, to intervene. So he's ready for that and the siege. These are titles here, Tartan, Rabsaris, Rabshekah. They're not personal names. The Tartan is the supreme commander. The Rabsaris is the chief officer. And my favorite, the Rabshekah is uh, the field commander. So, um, I don't know. I don't want another pet, but if I have one, maybe I'd name him Rabshekah. Anyhow, coming back to this. Uh, again, I think this is after his near-fatal illness that he survived by the hand of God when, and, and God gave him confirmation. I'm going to turn the sundial back. You'll know that I'm, I'm giving this to you. Um, no, this time... This time, it's not a bodily illness. It's the Assyrian war machine. But God did not deliver him from sickness to let him die by the sword of the Assyrian. Verse 18, and I think he comes to that conclusion. And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder came out to them. So here comes Reb Shekha with his entourage. And here's, uh, these are the uh, representatives of the king Hezekiah in, in the city. And they're coming out to uh, parlay with each other. Verse 19, then Reb Shekha said to them, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? Now it's on. Now we get the voice of the devil because he's making he's going against Yahweh. What confidence, what confidence is this in which you trust? He's going to attack Yahweh. 
He's going to lie. The voice of the devil to the people of God. Well, God's people, or should I say God routinely speaks through his people. The voice of God is routinely heard through his people. When you share the gospel, when you share scripture verses, that is the voice of God. Of course, you have to take in consideration the person's relationship with God. But Jehovah's Witnesses quoting scripture, it's not the voice of God. It would be a very unique situation if it were. The voice of Satan is also heard routinely uh, through people in life. People that blaspheme, the Antichrist voices. Here we're hearing it from the Rabshakeh. Satan is going to uh, speak through this man. You can, you can say in the heart, he's under the influence of Satan because it is not Yahweh. And he, Satan gets to speak through people more than some care to admit. Listen to what he's going to say. In verses 29 through 33, I'll just take excerpts from that. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Why? He's our godly king. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh. Saying, Yahweh will deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hands of the king of Syria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Lest he persuade you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. See, that's the voice of the devil. Don't listen to Jesus. Don't listen to your king. I'll come back to that in a moment. He asks here in verse 19, What confidence is this in which you trust? Well, Satan took the same approach with Eve, but in, in, a less, in a more subtle way. Well, the voice of God, it does not move us to doubt as this voice is doing. Matthew eleven twelve 12 tells us the story of uh, Matthew 11, verse 22, that is, gives us the answer of the Lord to the disciples. They were coming uh, to Jerusalem. Jesus sees a fig tree. It's got leaves on it, which... Promises fruit. He gets to it. No fruit. He curses the tree. He goes into Jerusalem. The next day they come back the same route to Jerusalem. The tree is completely dead. Trees don't die overnight. I mean, you can cut a tree down uh, and a stump with a little stem sticking out of it. And that spring, it will start turning green. <laughs> there's still enough sap in there. It's, if it's not, I mean, it's dead. But there's still life. Or evidence is up. But. That's not the case with this tree. And so they asked him about it, because this was amazing. Mark eleven twenty two. 22, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. It always comes back to that. You can study so much, you begin to miss the faith in God, and you start having faith in the studying. And that's a trap. It's, you've, you know, uh, you've, every Christian is a basic Christian. You can never become, well, now I'm a pastor. I'm still a basic Christian, and the basics, the fundamentals of our faith apply to me always. I have to trust God personally. Sometimes it's very hard. It's when it's something that is unraveling in your life, it's very hard. But it's doable. To love God deeply and to trust Him completely, is there a better, a better cause? Well, it's easy to say. And it's doable if your heart is submitted that's what I have found. Lord, fine, you're still God. I don't like this. You're God. I am not. Verse 20. You speak of having plans. This is Rabshakeh still speaking. You speak of having plans and powerful war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? So he's, 
you know, the devil has great war experience. And he's got two armies, fallen angels and fallen men. And he, he knows how to use them. But we should not be uh, lose heart over that. We know God has an army too of believers. And our God is stronger. When he says, but they were mere words. Uh, we put that back in context. You speak of having plans and powerful war, but they are mere words. This talk is cheap. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. This is more of what Hezekiah said to his troops. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him, as I read earlier. Of course, he's going back to the, pro- the great prophet, Elijah. And so he should. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? In other words, he's saying, who's strong enough to save you from me, this war machine? Um, pagans in those days had low opinions of Yahweh because the people of Yahweh had low opinions of Yahweh. With all the idolatry. Nowadays, why would men look to go to a church if the church does not look to go to God, does not look to go to the Scripture? If the church says they're going to God, but they're going against Scripture, why would the world admire that? That's your manual. That's your, 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 your marching orders. How can you defy it? Verse 21. Wow, it's getting late, isn't it? Um, only 37 verses in this chapter. Now look, you are trusting in uh, the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go through his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Well, where do you get this information? Well, he got spies there. He's getting information back. And he thinks he mentions Egypt. Well, Egypt is relatively impotent at this point in history. They're, they're really not a threat. And they're really never really recovered from the Exodus. And so he says, he's saying to them, those pagan altars that you took away, those were Yahweh's altars. So he's ignorant of the scripture and of the faith of the Jews. Um. That's a fatal assumption. God, Scripture, and the commandments of God, he's got them all mixed up. He doesn't care. Verse 23. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able, on your part, to put riders on them. So now he's attacking the the masculinity of the troops. You're not even man enough to ride horses. Why would I even give them to you? So insults and ultimatums coming from the voice of Satan. Verse 24. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt's chariots and horsemen? Well, you'll find out in chapter 19, Reb when 185,000 overnight are slain. Verse 25, have I now come up without Yahweh? But this guy doesn't stop. He can get worse, don't worry. Against this place to destroy it? And Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now he's a, he's a bully and he's a liar. And he enjoys his lies. Yahweh is listening. Because when we get to chapter 19, verse 23, verses 27 and 28, Yahweh's going to bring it up. You heard their arrogance. Matthew chapter 12. 
But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. It continues in verse 25. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Faint hearts are trembling by this lie about God. Stout hearts consider the source and defy it. Wait a minute, who said that? I don't buy it. That's how that would have happened. The righteous would have said, uh, who are you believing here? This pagan who's lying, doesn't know our faith, coming to conquer us? Or are you going to believe the prophet Isaiah? Verse 26, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in the Hebrew, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So he is a well-educated Rabshakeh. He's bilingual at the very least. He speaks the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew, Aramaic, and the Assyrian languages were all related, but sufficiently different to be distinct languages. Most of the Judeans at this time spoke Hebrew. By the time Christ comes along, Aramaic is the dominant language in the land of Israel. The Aramaic at this time was the language of treaty and trade. The ambassadors would use this language from, as they converged on the empires of, in that region of the world. Uh, but again, gradually, it replaced the Hebrew. So what they're saying is, listen, we don't want our people hearing what you're telling us. This is a, on the ambassador level. It's a private meeting. They should have said, let's move away from the wall. But they don't see this coming. So he says, do not speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. It's a propaganda alert. Uh, Rabshakeh, he knows he's handing out disinformation. He wants to weaken the morale Chronicles adds this, does not, this is Rabshakeh saying, it picked up in Chronicles 32, does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and thirst, saying, Yahweh, our God, will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. The voice of the devil. Your king is telling you God's going to save you from us. You should quit that God and come over to our side. And continues, verse 27, but the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? This man is disgusting. He's gonna, he says, I'm going to say this as loud as I want to say it. This is, I can broadcast it. I have the airwaves here, like the, the media. I, I'm going to stir them up, cause them to lose heart and even maybe revolt. Will you eat and drink their own? I mean, it's disgusting. It's obscene language to dramatize what's coming. He could have said nicely, listen, we're besieging Jerusalem. You don't want to die of starvation. It is a rough way to go. That would have been polite. That's not what he does. He goes to the language of the street and the horrors of being under siege. He's well-educated, foul-mouthed, and a loud mouth, all in one. And he's got this gigantic army with him. This is what Hezekiah is facing. And Hezekiah is saying to his men, we're going to trust God. Verse 29. Thus says the king, this is the king of Assyria, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Well, it's what the devil says about King Jesus. Verse 30. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Well, why can't we trust God instead of listening to you? Why should we listen to you just because you have an army? Well, that's what faith says in a defiant tone. Uh, the voice of the devil always says, don't trust God. Or don't trust him all the way. Just a little bit. Verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah. He keeps saying that. Well, thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me. Buy a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat and drink from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree. We have to stop there. Well, no, let's just continue this verse. And every one, verse 31, of you drink the waters of his own cistern. Sounds good. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Listen to me. I'm going to let you have just, you're going to just have a good life. You drink everything you want. This is what Satan says to, to teens. Don't listen to mom and dad who love you, who raise you, who educate you, provide for you. Don't listen to the preaching of truth that saves your soul and fortifies you for life. Don't listen to reason from the scriptures, but listen to those who are the Bible haters instead. And that's what we often see our teens do. They sit here, they sit in a sanctuary like this one or this one, and then they go out in the world and they turn their back on Jesus Christ and they do it with zest. That is the voice of the devil that gets them to do it. And they provide the portal for him to come in and speak. It says here in verse 31, For thus says the king of Assyria, Who cares? I have no interest in what Muhammad or Buddha or Charles Smith or Joseph, uh, Charles Russell or Joseph Smith have to say. I can't go around reading every false religious documents to see if I believe it or not. I have to believe the real thing. When I read the Bible, there's a filtering process that says, Is this true or is this not true? And if it is true, then nothing can come against it. Otherwise, I, I can't believe totally yet. I still got some more fake religion stuff to read. And then you go to your grave like that. And this is something that I, I, I have my suspicions where it comes from. There's this, uh, this mindset that thinks that there has, to be, there, there has to be due diligence, but to a point. After that, uh, and that point to me is you don't, it's not very long. You, you reach it very quickly. When I came to Christ, from reading the scripture, I knew he is God Almighty, the Savior. I knew it. And I knew at that instant, everybody else against him was wrong. And, I ha and, and may I go to my grave like that. Um, I don't care what the king of Assyria, the king of Persia, the king of Tyre. I don't care what any of them have to say unless it matches the Lord. That's what got Eve in trouble. Well, let's hear him out. You shouldn't have been in the neighborhood. She was in the wrong neighborhood. Anyway, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Yeah, well, you know, James, I'm just running out of time. James 4, 4, you can read it. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. He says here, every one of you eat from his own vine. Consider the source and consequences that Satan is being reasonable here. After all, if somebody's reasonable, they have to be right or decent. Satan is always uh, in search for agreement and worship. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Verse 32. Now comes the punchline. The devil's in the details. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a, <laughs> a grain of bread and vineyards. It makes you think of that barking in the spirit movement. Remember that? That was supposed to be a new wine. Uh, just, uh, I won't go into that now. Anyway, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, 
Yahweh will deliver us. Um, I've already commented, I guess, on most of that. um, That you may live and not die. Well, I am going to die someday. So I might as well die defying Satan. If it comes to that. And that's where the Jews are going to arrive. But do not listen to Hezekiah lest he persuades you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Surrender, he says. Paul answers it this way. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, including my life. Verse 33. Hey, we're almost there. Just hang in there a little more. Verse 33. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Well, other nations have followed God. Look what it got them. What makes all the other religions false and your religion right? See, Satan, you know, he comes and tries to reason with this. I don't think we should debate with the devil. I think we should, he should be rebuked. The Lord rebuke you. That's what the archangel Michael did in the end. He had some, he got power. In the end, God is going to tell his angels, okay, no more restraint. Grab him and chain him. <laughs> and I can bet, man, it just... Before the sentence was completed, the chains were clinging. Uh, that's what makes the book of Revelation, so one of the things, makes it so exciting. And the angel said with a loud voice, the presence of such power, the split atoms everywhere. Verse 33, uh, 34. Where are the gods of Hamath, Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvarim? Where am and Hannah and Iva? I have an answer for you. Anyway. Indeed, they have delivered Samaria. Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand. Verse 35. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand. That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. He says, so look at the record. I've been knocking these cities out. Their gods didn't do anything for you. What makes you think your God is any different than their God? Don't we hear that from the world? What gives you the right to say your way is the only the way, the truth, and the life? Well, we can t- answer that. Well, we've got this unbroken witness that you don't have from the beginning of creation. <laughs> what do you? What do you? This evolution is a joke. It's a joke. It's a hoax. But it ain't funny because everybody believes it. Not well. I mean, you know, not everybody. Anyway, the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, "Do not answer him." Don't debate this guy. Discipleship includes loyalty, courage, and obedience, and Judas died without it. Verse 37, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. His expression of, of course, uh, sorrow and trouble and shame and great distress. Interesting, Isaiah in chapter 22 prophesies that Eliakim will take Shebna's position and Shebna will be fired because he's arrogant. It's interesting. Isaiah 22, verses 15 through, through 25. You can read that. All right, well, that's it for tonight. I think, hopefully, a lot to consider. Even if you don't listen to what I have to say, in my opinion, which how could you not? Um, you could just read the story yourself and just be blessed. Let's pray. Our Father, um, may we not listen to the voice of the devil. May we be able to distinguish between your voice and his all the time. 
And may you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.